Real joy to be with you again this morning, and we are continuing to pray for Stephen's recovery. It is such a good news to hear that the operation was a success, and we continue to pray for him. But would you turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 7? Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be focusing on the last few verses, but I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. From Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample you underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. For which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell... And great was the fall of it. 
Let us pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we do humble ourselves as we come to this word this morning. We pray by your Holy Spirit you'd speak into our hearts, you'd encourage us and challenge us and convict us and build us up. Lord, we want to meet with you. We recognize these are difficult things to focus on and yet our heart desires to be more like Christ and to please you and walk in obedience and live lives worthy of our calling. So Father, we do pray now as we come to look at this that you would speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin with a question. What are you building your life on? What are you building your life on this morning? What do you rely on? What do you put your confidence in? How will you be able to stand firm when the storms of life hit? And we know that we're living in very unsettled times. We don't know what a year will bring anymore. But what we do know is that there will be challenges in the world around us. There will be challenges in the church as there are already. We will meet challenges in the nation all around us. And there's so much happening, I think, all around us that we have absolutely no control over. It's just happening, and we find ourselves in the middle of this storm. But I want to encourage us this morning that there is something that we can do. And it is the Lord Jesus' closing words in the Sermon on the Mounts, in verse 24, where he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And in these closing words of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the person who not only hears his teaching, but who also puts it into practice, is building their life on a foundation that cannot be shaken. Are you building your life this morning on a foundation that cannot be shaken? In a moment we're going to look at these verses, but before we look at these verses, I think it's helpful just to go back and look briefly over the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety. The Lord Jesus writes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He begins with the perfect description of a true disciple. He'd been teaching the crowds up to that point, And he begins to talk about the Beatitudes or the Blessed Attitudes. Jesus says, blessed is the poor in spirit. That is the person who knows that they're a sinner and need forgiveness. Blessed are the meek, the person that is humble in their heart and reliant completely on God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the person whose heart longs after God. There's a spiritual hunger and a longing for God in that person's heart. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Those who are reviled and slandered because of their faithfulness to Christ. And we are indeed living in those days. And and Jesus says that we should rejoice and be glad for our reward is in heaven. Jesus then goes on to explain that a true disciple should be someone who is distinctly different from the rest of the world. That they are salt and light and their righteousness makes them stand out from the world. And Jesus then moves on to explain how he has not come to abolish the law of Moses and the prophets, but to fulfill them. 
And he gets to the real heart of the issue of the Ten Commandments and fallen humanity's inability to keep it. And in Matthew 5 verse 20, there is a bombshell that would have literally, I think, brought about an audible gasp from everyone that was listening intently. And Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have been astonishing. People would have been gasping at this. And then Jesus then explains to them why that is. The reason why none of us are good enough. And the heart of the problem being the human heart. That's what makes it impossible to keep God's law and to please him in our own strength. And then in chapter 6, Jesus tells them that they can come to God in prayer and forgiveness. Notice this, there is the offer of coming to the Lord in prayer. And for the provision of our material needs. Here is a God who offers us spiritual life and forgiveness, but also the material provision for our daily lives. Comforting us and telling us that we don't need to be worried about this life or even the next. And Jesus goes on to tell them to build up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And the invitation is there. Ask, seek, knock. And also the warning. Enter the narrow gate that leads to life. For wide is the gate and wide is the road that leads to destruction. And many people enter in by it. And then we see in this chapter we've just had read. Jesus moves on to warn about, about the false prophets and apostasy in the church. He says in 7 verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. It's not, don't, be, don't beware in case. Beware when this happens. It's going to happen. We've been seeing a significant downgrade in the modern church. An acceleration into degeneration and heresy and apostasy. And tragically in many of the established denominations. And Jesus warned about this. And he also warns that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he elaborates on this warning. He says that many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Workers of lawlessness literally means someone who perpetually breaks God's law. The unrepentant. Notice Jesus says earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount that do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And firstly, there's a a warning there that the professing Christian who thinks that they can just carry on in unrepentant sin, in license, and breaking God's law, that they don't need to keep God's law, is in very real spiritual danger, and perhaps not even saved at all. And before we trip over legalism, let's be very clear about an important distinction that we are not saved by keeping God's law. We're saved by Christ's atoning death on the cross. That's how we're saved. But the evidence and fruit of our salvation is seen in that life that's obedient to God. With the sanctifying help of the Holy Spirit, we're keeping the law of God as an act of obedience and worship Not to win our salvation. That is why Paul says to the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, 
As you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. A true believer will break God's law. They'll make mistakes. But their response will be to grieve over their sin. They'll confess it to God. They'll be repentant and they'll want to change. There's a heart that wants to change. That none of this is done in our our own strength. It's done by the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit by whom we're sealed when we first believed and were saved. But there is this important warning at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There to warn us that there are so many people in the church who think that they're saved when they're not. Case in point, the disciple Judas, who would have been sitting there listening to every single word that left the Savior's mouth. He would have heard Jesus' sermons one after another, and he never took them to heart. Judas would have sat there and heard Jesus warn, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And Jesus spoke these words whilst Judas sat there and those words went into his ears, into his mind, but not into his heart. He didn't take the words to his heart. And those 30 pieces of silver brought the field that he hanged himself in. Let us be a warning when we read this this morning to all of us. So looking at our text this morning at the end of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a parable about a wise and foolish builder. And he compares the person who hears the teaching of Christ and does them as being a wise builder who builds his house on the rock. However, the person who hears Jesus' teaching and does not do them is like a foolish builder who builds his house on the sand. Both of those houses would be hit by the storms of life and ultimately the final judgment The difference is that one is going to stand and the other is going to fall. One of those houses will stand and the other one will fall. And you know what is so sobering about this parable is it's not taught and spoken to the unchurched and the churched. This is talking about church people. Those who would profess faith in Christ. Who regularly attend church. Who volunteer, who perhaps even have ministries In the church, that also includes people preaching at the front. You may think it's all right for that guy up front. It really isn't. James said in his his epistle that those of us who teach will be judged with greater severity. So God help the man preaching his word this morning. We should ask ourselves this morning, what am I building my life on? And so as we look at this parable and focus on it this morning... I'd like to think about the builders themselves. Their houses built on rock and sand. And the nature of the storm that came against their houses. The builders themselves, their houses built on rock and sand. And the nature of the storm that came against their houses. And so firstly, let's look at the builders themselves. Let's look at these two men. They both wanted to build a house. In fact, very likely in the same part of town, these would have been identical houses, very likely. They both wanted the same thing. 
the house for them and for their families. And so they essentially they set out about the same task with the same motive. Except they go about it in very different ways. In the parallel account of this same parable in Luke's gospel, Luke describes how the wise man dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock, whilst the foolish builder built his house straight onto the ground without a foundation. Now anyone listening to this who's involved in the building trade would laugh and say how incredibly ridiculous that is. You, you never start building a house on the ground without digging several meters under the ground first to lay the foundations for that house. You don't just kind of just plonk it there on the ground. But that's exactly what the foolish builder does. Because he really is just that. He is a fool. You might say he's an idiot. And now notice that the contrast in their character is seen in the different approach that they take to building their homes. And you start to see what kind of person the foolish builder is. This is a man who's in a great hurry. He rushes the important process of building a house. And by the way, what do you think is going to happen when the stone walls of the house collapse on top of him and his family as they're in the house eating or or sitting there, sheltering from the storm outside? Very likely it's going to seriously injure, if not kill, all of them. But the foolish builder is lazy, he's irresponsible. He can't be bothered to do the job properly. He doesn't follow the rules and disciplines of construction. He doesn't bother to find out how to build a house properly. He doesn't really care. He just thinks, well, I'll just put my house there and I'll park my car next to it and that'll be fine. It's a man who's short-sighted. He's naive. He doesn't think about how the house is going to stand at a time of testing. What will happen when the wind and the rains and the floods hit my house? He doesn't think about that, does he? He's not interested either in instruction and advice. To be honest, he's perfectly happy with his own opinion, even though he's wrong. And you know, there's people in the church today who've come to completely the wrong conclusions about who God is and what he's like. And they're happy just to settle on their opinions, rather than finding out whether it matches what the Bible says. You may have heard people saying, well, I like to think of God like this. Oh, I don't think... I don't think it really means that when the Bible says that. We hear this a lot. The foolish builder, in many ways, is a professing Christian who's not interested in what the Bible has to say ultimately. He's not concerned about having a deeper, correct understanding of the Scriptures. This is a man who has no interest in doctrine. He's not interested in regularly reading and studying the Word. He's certainly not interested in in any theology or doctrine. That's really just for people who are in full-time ministry or or just a bit keen. Maybe a bit of a theology nerd. And that's how they think. This is a person who doesn't see the importance of knowing their Bible well. Understanding their doctrine. Understanding the bigger biblical picture of God's plan of salvation. And just one example, I've seen this time and time again as a a minister. And one practical example of this is the Christian who doesn't think that they need to have an understanding of, of suffering or a theology of suffering. So when that crisis comes, and, and very early on in the Christian life, you'll face a testing. And when that crisis comes, they're ill-prepared for it, and, and their faith doesn't stand up to the testing, and, and, it, and it crumbles. And very often that person will be incensed with God and give up. 
A foolish builder is, is a person who wants all the benefits of Christianity, but without building their life on Christ. I wonder this morning, is your life built on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Do you have a faith that goes deep into the promises of God? Or is it a weak, shallow faith that will not stand in the day of testing? But in contrast to the foolish builder, we see the wise builder. This is a man who sets about the task of building a house diligently. He finds out what he needs to do and he does all the hard work. He digs deep into the rock, sweating and toiling away. Probably whilst the foolish builder's already built his house and he's just sat there having a cool drink. But he's digging into the rock. He's, he's putting the effort in. He's chipping away at that rock. No, day after day in the hot sun, knowing that it's going to be worth it one day. He's willing to take the time to do the job properly. And he applies himself fully to the task. True Christian discipleship takes effort. But it's worth it. I'd also say as well that... That's why we have the creeds and confessions. It's why we catechize our families. We want to build those deep foundations in the faith. But secondly, let's now look at uh, what the two builders built their house on. Rock and sand. Rock and sand. Now during the hot summer months around the Sea of Galilee, the, the sand would have been baked by the hot sun. So it was hot on the surface and it would have looked to most people as just being like hard solid ground. Of course it wasn't, but it looked like it. Anyone with local knowledge however would know that when the autumn rains came and the rivers flooded down into the plain, this this hard topsoil would soon turn into liquid and be washed away. That stony ground was very deceptive. And there's a form of Christianity that looks like Christianity, but isn't the real thing. You may have experienced it over the years. And there's a type of Christian that looks outwardly like a Christian, but their faith will not stand up to the ultimate judgment. And so as we look at the sand for a moment, as we've already seen with the foolish builder, he's hasty and superficial. He's not bothered about the the disciplines of the Christian faith, but just builds his faith on the sifting sands of, of human emotion and their own opinions. Someone who's kind of building their, their, their faith, is, as it were, on the sand is someone who may have had some encounter with God at some point, experienced God in their life, but that's not enough. Now, I know several people who've had an encounter with God in a, in a profound way, but it was just a temporary thing. It never followed it up in their hearts we're not transformed by the gospel. I remember one friend of mine who had gone to a big Christian youth festival, came back after having had a powerful encounter with God, got in the Church of England, he'd got confirmed, having been baptized a child. And, but it only took a matter of months before he soon went to his own way of life and drifted back to how he was before. And to this day, he's a long way away from the Lord. They built their house on the sand, and he built his house on the sand. There are professing Christians who've had some kind of encounter with God at some point, but the witness evaporated in no time. The glow wore off. They fell in the first storm that hit them. 
And so many people who profess Christianity don't actually have a relationship with the Christ of Christianity. To quote the American preacher Vody Borkham, he says, the, the modern church is producing passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. How true is that today? Very often people will go to church, they, they like the service, it's got the short sermon, 15, 20 minutes, get through it an hour, whatever. They tick the church box and go back to living their lives as if God wasn't there. No witness in their life, no transformation. There's no desire to have a deep relationship with God, to grow in their faith and to know Him deeper. There's a false form of Christianity that is more based on the expressive individualism of our modern culture than what the Scripture really teaches. This is a drift that's left into a, led into apostasy, and it's shocked and surprised many people. Going back to what we see in, in the established church, in the Church of England, and yet I was tripping over the roots of that at Theological College 13, 14 years ago. I could see it back then, and you could see the direction it, things were going in. So many people have a cut and paste approach to Scripture. They take the passages they like, but they don't read the, the whole of it. People like to read about David and Goliath and put themselves in the place of David, even though it's about Christ and Satan and the people of God. People like to think of themselves as being Goliath, but they don't want to think about David and Bathsheba and the sober warnings of that story. A foolish builder is a false Christian who doesn't hunger and thirst for righteousness. There isn't a deep desire for holiness and to live a life of godly obedience. They'd rather just have comfort and happiness. They just want it to be easy. And as Johnny read earlier on from James in his epistle, very fittingly, James says in his epistle that faith without works is dead. A life without works is not faith at all. Faith always has to be lived out practically. There has to be evidence in our, in our lives. To quote Dr. Mark Lloyd-Jones, he said, The difference between faith and intellectual assent is that intellectual assent simply says, Lord, Lord, but does not do his will. A false Christian admires the Sermon on the Mount, a bit like someone might admire a fine painting in an art gallery. So look at that, an absolute masterclass in moral teaching. Well, if only people lived their lives like that, the world would be a much better place. But they don't see it as speaking to them personally. They don't put themselves into that and, and put it into practice and be challenged by it. But let's look at the rock which the wise builder builds his house onto. The wise builder, he looks at the bigger picture. He's a true believer who faces up to all of Scripture. The Apostle Paul famously, when he was saying his emotional farewell to the elders at the church in Ephesus, he, he told them that he had taught them the whole counsel of God. He said, I've not shirked or shrunk away from teaching you the whole counsel of God, the whole of the Bible and what it teaches. The true believer knows that they, that they have to face up to Scripture. There's the wisdom to know that they must master a deeper understanding of all of Scripture. They need to have an urgency how they approach reading the Bible. They don't put it off. You don't know you'll live to see tomorrow. You hope you will. But every opportunity is taken with both hands. They pursue God in his word. A wise builder is a Christian who's willing to be rebuked 
and corrected. None of us like to be rebuked and corrected. I certainly don't. But you always feel grateful for the person who calls you to account. And that is a, a wise builder. He's accountable to others. He has a teachable spirit. He bows himself to the correction and the reproof of Scripture. He can be seen to be outwardly conforming to the Beatitudes because the Word of God has changed him and the Holy Spirit is renewing and sanctifying him. I wonder this morning, is there a desire in our lives and in us to live the Sermon on the Mount for it to define our lives? Does it define us? Does it make us want to change our lives and for these teachings to define our character and behavior? A true Christian desires and prays for holiness. They long to be transformed and be more like Christ. Do you find yourself praying, Lord, please make me more like your son? Do you find yourself, as I often do, to be honest, just thinking about things and and the way I might have behaved or, or some attitudes and just being grieved by them and being saddened by them? We're not perfect, but we want to be perfect. We want to be more like Christ. It's not just to be relieved of our guilt and to have assurance of eternal life, but it's the love of Jesus changing us and wanting to know him more deeply. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Do you love him more than anything or anyone else? And last of all, let's look at the, the wind and the rain and the floods that beat on those two houses with very different outcomes. And we see the Lord Jesus time and again warning in the Gospels that there are going to be two kinds of testing that will come to every believer and every false believer. They will both face these testings. The first is the storms of life. And the second is the final judgment. Every single one of us will face the storms of this life and the final judgment. Let's firstly look at the storms of this life as we see in this parable of the two builders. Firstly, there's the rain. We see the rain. In many ways, the rain can represent the trials that come to all of us in our life. Illness, loss, disappointment, shattered dreams. We've all been through it at various points. We all will continue to. It's life. We get used to saying, well, that's life. It's the trial that we go through that we have absolutely no control over. But you know, people can be crushed under the rain. Professing Christians can be crushed under the rain. I've seen people, they they lose their job or or the relationship breaks down or whatever it is and that's it, they're done. They're done with God. They, They were crushed under the rain. Their marriage broke down, whatever it was, the sand gives way and that's it, bam, the house comes down. All it took was some rain. All it took was their circumstance to get a bit bad. And that was it. Done. You, you may have seen people like this. The rain comes. Bam. That's it. That's the end of it. That's the end. They walk away. They're done with God. That person had no faith to begin with. They had no foundation. They were not holding on to the promises of God. They weren't saying, yeah, well, God is worth it. Christ is worth it. Whatever I face in this life, it doesn't matter. I have a hope that doesn't disappoint. They have this Holy Spirit living in me. I will never give up on God because the Holy Spirit has got a hold of my heart and I will never let go and he'll never let go of me. But the rain comes and it it takes them out. Life got tough and their faith collapsed. Then there's the floods. Worldliness. The sin and the temptation of the world around us. God help us, we're absolutely 
flooded and saturated by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It's all around us today worse than ever. The sins and temptation of this life, they're like a a flood that's just trying to leak into our houses through any gap or opening. Through our desires, what we think about, what we watch, what we look at, what we read, what we listen to. There's the power even in, in secular music and secular films. It leads the emotions towards the flesh and and many of the programs that are on our televisions are, are full of all kinds of things that we shouldn't be looking at. That is looking to flood into our homes. There's a flood tide of worldliness trying to break into our house, wanting to get in to flood our hearts and our minds with godlessness and sinful desires that lead to a capitulation to the flesh. And many people fall into temptation because they love the world and the flesh more than Christ. And the flood of the temptation came in and they gave into it. Just like Lot's wife looking back longingly over Sodom and Gomorrah. Her heart still belonged to that wicked city. You know, I've seen many Christian men making a shipwreck of their faith. I was just thinking of a a good friend of mine who, who led a house group when I went off to ministry and I, I handed the leadership of this house group over to my, over to my friend. He's since had an affair for many years, wandered away. It's tragic. But it happens. The worldly temptation comes. Unless we love the Lord and we love his word, we want to obey him and have the wisdom to understand that sin can get in and compromise us. And bring us into bondage. It's a trap. And the word of God tells us to flee temptation. But also reminds us. And this is important for us to remember. Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest Jesus Christ. Who was tempted in every way. And is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Yes we will face temptations. And some people have been hit by the temptations. And it's destroyed their walk with God. And yet God will protect us from it if we. Look to him. And lastly, there's the wind, the attacks of the enemy. The Apostle Paul warns in Ephesians 6 verse 12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The devil will make violent attacks on us to try and make the house come crashing down. He'll throw doubts at us. He'll say to you, do you call yourself a Christian? Look what you just did. You're not a true Christian. God won't accept you now. He is an accuser of the brethren. He will accuse you. He will try to make you believe that, well, I'm not a very good Christian. Maybe I should just stop pretending. And now a false Christian in that situation may think, well, I suppose I'm not a true Christian then. If I'm living in this way and I want to live like this and I'm doing this, well, maybe I should just carry on in that way. But a true Christian will claim the blood of Christ. The true Christian will claim the blood of Christ. The true Christian knows that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin and all unrighteousness. And it silences the accuser. The blood of Christ silences the accuser. Even when our heart feels like we've gone too far. Even when we think We've blown it. We remember that our Saviour knew what he was paying for on the cross. 
He shed his blood for us, even at our worst, even at our most awful, even at our most lousy situation where we find ourselves thinking, how could I stoop so low, not low enough for the Savior? He shed his blood and died for you and I. There is no sin that he cannot forgive. There is, there is forgiveness in Christ. The blood brings forgiveness. 1 John 3 verse 24, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. The blood of Christ shed on the cross for your sin answers the devil's attacks. When he accuses us, we can stand our ground and say, Christ bled and died for my sin. He bled and died for my sin. He died in my place. And through faith in his atoning sacrifice for my sin, I've been declared righteous before God. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. Satan has no answer to that because he was defeated at the cross. We'll all have to face trials, temptations and spiritual attack. But praise God that he's provided us with the means to face all of them. And he's with us in the storm. Last of all, there's the final judgment. That this life is not all that there is. One day we'll stand before God at the final judgment. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day. There will be many professing Christians that say, on that day. But we did this. We did that. There will be a day of reckoning. We'll all have to stand. Before the judgment seat of Christ. We read about it everywhere in scripture. And Jesus warns us time and again. In the book of Revelation. It also tells us that the books will be open. And everyone will be judged. The whole Bible is ultimately concerned. About whether we will stand. Or fall on the final day of judgment. Quote J.C. Ryle, he says, A religion that costs us nothing and consists in nothing but hearing sermons will always prove at last to be a useless thing. What about us this morning? What are we building our lives on? Are we confident in Christ that we'll stand on that final day? Are, are we living holy and walking in obedience with God? I close with something I heard Joel Beakey saying uh, at a conference recently online. He said, why would anyone live their life as if they're not in the light of the final judgment? Why would they spend more time preparing for a two-week vacation than they would for eternity? You have one life and one soul to lose or to gain. To so be faithful, be in Christ and walk closely to him. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your Saviour, Jesus Christ, for our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who you sent for us. Your Son, who died on the cross for us, that we could be redeemed, and that we could walk faithfully with you, and to be known and loved by you. And Father, I pray for us this morning, that there would be that urgency in all of our lives, myself included, that we would live in the light of eternity. But Father, I pray that we would have the assurance and the comfort of our faith. That we'd know whatever storms, whatever rain, whatever floods, whatever wind comes at us. That we are safe in you, in Christ. So Father, I pray for us today. That you protect us and keep us close to your son. Throughout our week and throughout our lives. That we would not fall away. But that we would walk faithfully and persevere in Christ in Jesus name. Amen.